0: I've spent the last few years, or I've spent the last two decades, really, sort of writing from other countries about oftentimes human rights problems in those countries. And I come to it as an American with some sense that, yes, we are in this ongoing multi-century struggle of our own to try to live up to our core aspirations, whether it's equal opportunity, equal rights, uh, a truly free press, and so on. And I am, I think, chastened and made more humble by this period of recognizing just how much work has to be done in this country for us to even say that we're an agent for those values around the world.
1: Hello and welcome to China Talk. Evan Osnos is a correspondent for The New Yorker. We'll be talking about the protests in the U.S., Trump, Xi, and U.S.-China relations. We're recording this episode on June 8th. Evan, thanks for coming on China Talk.
0: My pleasure, Jordan. Thanks for having me.
1: So I find it unbelievable that it is even remotely possible to have a conversation comparing something happening in the U.S. in 2020 with Tiananmen,
0: but here we are. Well, you know what's interesting about this, Jordan? It's such an interesting moment. Obviously, this almost bizarre cosmic overlap of the anniversary of June 4th, the massacre of Tiananmen, with the very moment that we're having this national protest movement in the United States. For anybody who is an American China nerd. This is just kind of powerfully evocative. And my initial reaction was, hold on here. Let's be very cautious about making casual analogies because it can run the risk of actually sort of dishonoring the scale of the tragedy at Tiananmen in 89. Yeah, That's actually, sure. you know, we're talking about uh, a, a, a huge loss of life in, in um, a matter of days in uh, in Beijing and elsewhere. And then there are, of course, actually really interesting parallels. And one of them being this idea of a leadership that is fortifying itself against its own people. That for me is the part that rises to the to the surface. You know, anytime you end up in a situation in which a leadership, either sort of physically, geographically, or ultimately those are all reflections of like spiritually and intellectually, they are literally barricading themselves against their own citizenry. And that's what's happening right now in Washington. And that's what happened in Beijing in 89. So even if we can bracket the comparison by saying, let's not get into the business of casually invoking Tiananmen all the time, because it undermines the seriousness of what happened in 89. It is true that there is some really fascinating parallel there.
1: And how about the, how about the sort of executive military Branch tensions, you know. Of course, famously in Tiananmen, there were leaders of the military as well as troops who were not at all down with the program. Yeah, which is, which is a tension that we've we've certainly seen play out with, you know, the second the the Secretary of Defense coming out and saying we don't want to do this and have active yeah. military on the ground.
0: Yeah, and another comparison that's super interesting is that here in Washington, there are National Guard units from around the country, so from Utah, for instance, or elsewhere. And what I found fascinating is. That was a feature of the of the military strategy at Tiananmen was to get military units from far away from Beijing yeah. so that they felt no personal connection to the people in the capital. And oftentimes they regarded the people in the capital as these kinds of, you know, privileged elite kids, spoiled brats, basically, who were coming and rising up and so on. And it's not a stretch to see some similar kind of over the mountains and Uh, you know, over the mountains to Utah from the palace here in Washington, bringing people in who don't feel connected to it. There is something eerie about that. I was very struck by that as I looked at those images of the men in uniform at the Lincoln Memorial, which I think for a lot of us kind of galvanized crystallized this thing, the moment, and thinking to myself, what's going on in that in that man's mind, as he thinks about the people here before him, because there is that vast divide. I don't want to quite say urban rural, because in some cases, it's not really that, but it is definitely power center and province.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, in, 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 you know, it's, it's really GOP Democrat, as much as anything else, where you where you saw a sort of series of gov- of Republican governors, like, offering up their tribute yeah. of, of yeah. you know, 500 yeah. or 1,000 of
0: 1,000 National Guard members. So not, it not some, to just write on Utah. One of the moments that I was really struck by was, I mean, not only having the mayor of Washington write Black Lives Matter in huge, type down... The middle of the asphalt, so that Trump can see it from his helicopter when he flies away. I mean, that's an amazing moment of political expression playing out. But also the fact that Arlington County, Virginia, and forgive me if I get some of the facts here wrong, but I think this is right. They with they withdrew their National Guard, or they withdrew their cops. Actually, it was their cops because they felt like they weren't being used responsibly in Washington. That's it. it is a it's extraordinary. Ex- sort of exhibit of the nature of American governance, that you have these different levels of the federalist system at war with one another. And if you want to find a positive thing there, and there is something positive, it's that these that this is all happening and it's happening in in public and that we're sort of watching as different political leaders are using the power that they have to check one another. And that's That's better than the alternative, which is having a central executive that is steamrolling over everything without the ability for these other layers to impede it.
1: Yeah. So uh, Joseph Terygian, who's a a, a Western political scientist, wrote a uh, a piece a few years ago doing a sort of retrospective on what we know now about the decision making that led up to the Tiananmen crackdown. And one of his sort of hypotheses, which I think is fascinating to think about in the context of you know June in America 2020, is the idea that, and I'm quoting here, it is possible that Dung understood that the process could be diffused without violence, but feared that such a solution would have created an uncontrolled political space with unforeseen long-term implications. Dung was clearly afraid about protests becoming a regular feature of the political landscape and making the reform and opening process more difficult.
0: I, I think, I mean, in a way, I have a hard time drawing too close a comparison between Dung and Trump simply because, <laughs> you know, they, for all of Dung's failures, and they were, some of them are, are profound and historic, he was of a different nature and totally different order of, of kind of political leadership. His, yeah. his, you know, he'd done the reading to be blunt about it. Like he actually was, he was coming from a very different biography. So, but I think whereas, so yeah, I think Trump is basically operating from a fairly thin personal playbook, a combination of kind of adrenal impulses and moments of political self protection. And Dung, you know, made a catastrophic error at Tiananmen square, but he was also probably operating with some more, theory behind it, even if the theory was wrong.
1: I think the sort of thinness of his thinking really reflects back to this quote that he gave in 1992 to uh, Playboy, back when Playboy was a place that did journalism. He said that when when he Trump said that, uh, quote, when students poured into Tiananmen Square, the Chinese government almost blew it, but they were vicious. They were horrible and they put it down with strength. That shows you the power of strength. Our country is right now being perceived as weak, as being spit on by the rest of the world. So, you know, I, yeah, I, Trump clearly wasn't thinking, "Oh, this will be good for you know, Gaga Kaifong." But I think right. he th- there's some gut level where he just doesn't want to be shown up and yeah. sees folks market marching in uniform as something that's a show of strength and makes him feel makes him feel stronger. When you know, I, we'll get to this. Obviously, this is like shows just how weak he is as a president.
0: What I found interesting about that quote is, in some ways, Trump has been consistent over the years in his in his adulation of raw force. And it's interesting, too, because you could take that quote that he gave to Playboy in 1990 and you could say, well, I wonder if Xi Jinping in a private moment would say something like that. And he he probably would. The difference, of course, is that Xi Jinping is cannier about what he says in public. So even Xi Jinping might not praise Tiananmen in quite those terms. So, of course, we know that he would agree with the disposition and what they did. But it it begins to help you then understand why does Trump look at people like Xi Jinping or leaders who have that power of use of force and why does he admire them so much? It's not, you know, sometimes we wonder, is it simply the scale of China's economy? Is it the kind of gilded glamour of life in Beijing? Is it is it one party state? What is it? I think on, on the most basic level, it's the application of force and the potential to use that that is the chief seduction for Donald Trump when it comes to why he likes authoritarianism so much.
1: So, you know, it, 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 it's funny. It's funny you brought that up because like she when he goes to Davos, which God knows if that's ever going to happen again, but he goes, he goes to Davos and he gives a speech and he, you know, the delivery is like convincing right yeah yeah. you know he's not sitting up there like trump would when he's told to give a speech which he doesn't maybe 100 percent believe in and he's you know rolling his eyes and like you know (laughs) skipping every third sentence but like you know there's just a level of 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 game playing which which Mm -hmm. is clearly operating at a higher level than 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 this president but Mm -hmm. it's interesting to think you said like would trump really rather prefer to be in a different Leading mm-hmm. not necessarily a democracy, but a different system. And it, it, it's funny to me thinking about this, because in order to rise up a, a communist apparatchik, you, you really – like, yes, you need the head start of having your father have a revolutionary credentials or whatnot. But there's also, like, a lot of games and, like, interpersonal yeah. dynamics that need to be played. And, yeah. you know, if Trump was not elected president, like, there is no way that he would win any bureaucratic
0: power totally. Yeah. No, that's actually, I mean, you know, all of us have heard from Chinese friends and counterparts, this idea that, you know, the system in which you groom a leader through all of these levels where they first are, you know, they're the head of the local grain association, then eventually they're the county chair and then this and this and this, that it does introduce a level of, um, they acquire almost a physical vocabulary of how you behave in certain settings, you know, how you give deference to the person who is the leader above you. and I actually think what's interesting is in American politics, there's some some elements of that, not always. Obviously, we, we do have more of a belief in the idea of a transcendent political figure who can kind of, you know, in their first run for office, go into some senior role. But there are bits of political theater that we have in Washington, too. I mean, you, and you spend five minutes watching the Senate and you kind of see some of those bits of... The ways in which people give deference to one another, and that's partly self-serving, sort of making their way up. But then you, we're living in this period now when there are people who are blowing that up.
1: So, so we've done Trump is dung, but let's do Trump is Mao. So <laughs> you you tweeted a quote from Limbiao from the great Frank Dikker trilogy, quadrilogy. A a historian of modern China, Lin said that, quote, Mao worships himself, has blind faith in himself, adores himself, will take credit for every achievement, but blame others for his failures. So, I mean, there's clearly some difference in the way that the anxieties and insecurities have played out in the minds of Donald Trump and and Mao Zedong. But I'm curious for your sort of recollection, Mm. uh, reflections on, on the two.
0: I have a problem, Jordan, which is that I've exhausted my reservoir for Trump psychoanalysis because I got interested in it when he was a candidate, and I got obsessed with it, and I wrote a lot about like trying to understand how the hell we'd gotten ourselves into this situation, and that was like a long time ago now. And it feels to me like I've just the tank is empty i I'm sort of kidding because actually the tank refills itself once a new moment arrives, and this moment right now of the protest movement, which seems to be challenging not not just Trump obviously but an entire embedded system of injustice, is a moment that revives your focus on what trumpism represents so but to go back to your point, yes, there are delicious points of comparison between Trump and Mao, and it goes to anybody who um, imagines themselves as a as a figure of salvation. I mean that's part of the risk of like, you know. I have I have a, a soft spot for documentaries about cults and anytime you watch something like that, you are reminded of the elements of kind of the catastrophes of overly charismatic leadership. And I mean charismatic in the technical sense, not as a normative compliment. But yeah, um, so it always happens that way.
1: So, you know, the protest movement has has been something that's been covered very aggressively within media in China, and has now been turned into a sort of political weapon. I'm curious if you could sort of prognosticate about what this protest movement and the government's response is. You know what impact it has on U.S. China relations and, and America's place in the world.
0: I think this protest movement, which is obviously being watched very closely around the world, is 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 a sign of. Um, of how the United States is struggling internally to prove that it's living up to the aspirations it expects of itself and other countries, I mean to be yeah. blunt about it, it gets a lot harder to go and tell the Burmese government that you need to do better in protecting the rights of minorities and restricting the arbitrary use of force when we're having a movement in our own country that is demanding those those very improvements and that's good actually that we're That we're being, in a sense, we're, this is actually a hard one to get right, Jordan. And I am glad we're talking about it because it's really important. Like I'm going through this process right now Mm -hmm. thinking to myself, okay, I've spent the last few years, or I've spent the last two decades, really, sort of, you know, writing from other countries about oftentimes human rights problems in those countries. And I come to it as an American with some sense that, yes, we are in this ongoing multi-century struggle of our own to try to live up to our core aspirations, whether it's, you know, equal opportunity, equal rights, uh, a truly free press, and so on. And I am, I think, chastened and made more humble by this period of recognizing just how much work has to be done in this country for us to even say that we're an agent for those values around the world. That's yeah, the honest I, answer. You know?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's sort of two sides to this coin. There's the obvious one that you spoke to with 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 Burma. There's the one talking about sort of mainstream Chinese public opinion. You know, I've had a few conversations with with friends. The stuff I've read on social media, it's like Miguoluanla, yeah. like Like, look mm-hmm. at look at how you know. Isn't it great that we don't have to put up with this shit? But there's also from from sort of you know mainstream Chinese who who see any sort of action on the streets as as dangerous and scary, and that of course mm-hmm. is amplified by you know every video you see on Douyin, every state media broadcasts only showing you know people burning targets and and, yep. and Nike stars. Yep. But I, I think the, the the point you you alluded alluded to Evan is really important. Is that like I, I think there is, and, and I imagine this was also sort of the dynamic in. 2003 with all the anti-war protests around bush is that like it's important for the world to know yeah that not everyone's on not everyone's like on board with, with yeah. what's going on in the white house and you know with with trump being such a such an outsized media personality and so easy to cover around the world like it's it, it's understandable but i think just seeing all the protests that all the, all the solidarity movements that you've seen in all these, all these, all these capitals in, in, in Europe yeah. and, and South America, it, it makes you makes you hopeful that like enough people still believe that America's like can be something good.
0: Yeah. I actually think you know, there's two ways you can look at it. So there's the superficial reaction to what's going on in the United States. That's what you see sometimes from a kind of triumphalist nationalist Chinese perspective, which is, aha, see, American democracy has always been a fiction and a lie and uh, better to have suppression and quiet than to have open, sometimes violent protest. And the reaction is no. Like silence is often a sign of the absence of political movement towards, you know, let's say, bending the arc of justice. I, I'm going to borrow from you know my colleague, Joe Lepore at The New Yorker, who has made the really, I think, important, sort of profound point. It's more than a point. It's a theme of a lot of the work she's doing that oftentimes like protest is painful and is also the sign that you're moving in the direction of something better. And yeah. one of the things that we see in China is that the inability to have that protest, it's not only dangerous for the government to not really understand how, how where and what kind of dissatisfaction there is. It's also a sign that it's not moving in the direction of uh, greater fulfillment of those kinds of aspirations. So, you know, and then, so that's that's part of it. And then there's the other side of it, which is like, so yeah, American democracy as a brand is being harmed over the course of these few years by the election of Donald Trump the, uh, you know, let's call it shorthanded by the violence he has done to America's governance. And then at the same time, what we're witnessing right now, what the world is witnessing is that Americans actually believe enough in these concepts to go into the streets about them and to risk themselves and their personal interests in order to try to push the country into a better place. So that's good.
1: Yeah, so you know we've been talking a fair amount about the present and the current sort of state of of U.S. China relations post coronavirus, which we've talked a lot about on the show, is is likely at a is, is perhaps you know some folks have said at a I guess you've said in your pieces is at an all time low since probably since Nixon. But yeah. it's, it, I think, still important to sort of look back and and reflect on to what extent this was all predestined. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, what, what what's your take? What are the contingencies worth thinking about that could have sort of changed the the relationship over the past you know twenty, I guess, thirty years?
0: I yeah. Think. Well, so here, but here's an interesting point. Why would we say Nixon in '72 versus Carter in '79? Right. That's when relations were actually normalized. And so. The reason why I think there's a distinction that's meaningful is that when you say that this is the worst point in U.S.-China relations since '79, what you're what you're implying is that in the years before the formal normalization of relations, that things were tense, more tense than they are now. When actually, the crucial ingredient was there in the '72 to '79 period, which is a fundamental belief. Mm in a shared notion of the direction. I mean, even if they were wary of each other, they believed that they were heading towards a common destination, which was trying to bring these two huge powers, you know, China's case, soon to be a huge power, into alignment with each other. And that's the thing that is missing today, is that we actually have, and that gets to your point about predestination here, that to some degree whether or not trump was president and whether or not he introduced his kind of grab bag of china tactics not quite even strategy that you had a case where the two par- the two powers have lost the much more important ingredient which is a shared notion of what the future looks like to some degree uh i'm not pretending that china ever imagined they were going to become a democracy i think that's a straw man i think what i'm saying is that they at least imagined both sides, that there was some companionable way for these two to get along with each other. And that had begun to erode over the course of the last few years, even before Trump. It's gotten much, much stronger under Trump, Uh, you know, that sense of, of confrontation. But it was happening. I think, you know, I sometimes we often ask the question, oh, okay, how much of this would have happened if Trump hadn't come to power? It's an interesting question, which is how much of this would have happened if Xi Jinping hadn't come to power? That's actually yeah. a much harder one to answer because how much is Xi Jinping a product of this lower trust of the United States, this higher tolerance for confrontation? All those kinds of questions. I don't know. I mean, I'd be curious what you think.
1: I mean, Li Keqiang just seems like much less of an asshole.
0: He's like, not
1: he's like, not a son of a bitch. And <laughs> like him as, like, less of a son of a bitch, like, that's the part that gets put forward, right? Because he's in this, he's in this role where he's doing, you know, economic policy, and he's, like, liberalizing the food stalls and talking about poverty all the time. And, you know, clearly, these are things that he cares about, right? But, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're the top dog, you also have to deal with the US, with the trade war, with Donald Trump. And, like, you know, it's not inconceivable that he would sort of draw the same conclusions if he, if if, like, his... If 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 the place that he was in was different from the from the place he is now, so yeah, you know, I mean, that's hypothetical. Number one, like Bossi, lie. I mean, who the fuck knows what would
0: have happened? Yeah. With, yeah, with
1: with him as with with him running the show.
0: I do think that in a way, the you know the Xi Jinping that we all began to see in 2013, 2014, when let's remember Donald Trump was still hosting the Apprentice, but that person is very much the person that we see now. So Xi Jinping arrived in office with yeah, a that's vision true. For, for what he wanted to do. And I think, you know, the degree to which that's gotten, you know, heightened or accelerated because of Trump is a whole is a separate question. But but I think you you know, I really do I'm of the view that like she represented a fundamental break. That might be overstating it, but that she did represent a new direction for the leadership. And I have this debate, like an ongoing debate with friends in who who follow China about how much was all of this, or was the train already in motion? And sure, it's true. Like under Hu Jintao, you did see a tightening up. There's just no question that post 2008, you saw this trend towards tightening up. But degree matters and it it entered a whole new phase. And then one last thing I'll mention on that subject of like leadership and why it matters is that part of the, reason why it matters that Xi Jinping is the, the, is the leader of the party is that he has a, a, an effect on all of the people underneath him who you know, might behave in one way or another, but given the fact that he's the leadership, they take the maximalist authoritarian yeah. position. And there's something similar with Trump. You know, You see people who might operate on a bandwidth spectrum of different behaviors, but because he is the boss and kind of validates these things... Then they end up taking that maximalist position, so that 's the effect over time
1: so I, I've asked this to a few guests now, but I'll, we'll throw it to you as well. Is there any way this improves with she still in power?
0: I can see it improving, yeah, actually i can't give you a roadmap for how that happens, but i think I think that one thing that's worth keeping in our minds about it is that she is not delusional about china 's ability to win a real war with the United States. I think that's worth keeping in mind. Like he might have an overinflated sense of how China would handle a specific point of conflict. Like he might be reckless about his use of particularly assets at sea, but I don't think he believes that China would emerge stronger from a real conflict with the United States. Now, I know that's kind of going a little far down the runway in terms of your question, but like... That is an outer bound on, on what, what I think yeah. they're willing to do. I, I mean, uh, it, that's
1: a, it's a, that's a tricky framing, Evan, because like all it takes is one, all yeah. it takes is one sort of miscalculation, right? Yeah. She thinks, all right, like, make a lama, like, they don't, you know, <laughs> you know right. let's, 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 right. let's play with Taiwan and see what happens. And then yeah. all of a sudden, a lot of things get out of his control. And regardless that he has this prior that like American carriers, aren't That's as true. shitty as some of his admirals think they are you still end up in a in a really really scary situation because he has this other expect this other prior which is that taiwan's defenses aren't all there you know. yeah he, he has either either the prior that taiwan's defenses aren't all there crack cracked up to me or like net net this is still a positive for my domestic <laughs> political position for like the glory of china uh, you know
0: i i, I uh, you you've kind of persuaded me and so you, you did, I have to say, set out a hard task, which is, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic with <laughs> Trump as president and the U.S.-China at their worst point in the history of the relationship, is there any reason, is there any conceivable course for optimism? And I tried, yeah. and I think I kind of failed.
1: You know, you know what also really <laughs> bummed me out? And this is less serious than, than a war in Taiwan. But, yeah you know, as, as listeners know, I, I spent a fair amount of time following Chinese hip hop and what i found really remarkable over the past few weeks is the extent to which the like global k-pop fandom has really yeah. gotten behind black Lives matter and oh, you know bts bts fans from from south korea and brazil and japan and even within china have like donated i think over a million dollars to various you know bail mm-hmm. funds and and mm-hmm. police reform causes the 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 Hip hop artists in China who have made their livings off of black culture and, you know, oftentimes say, hey, like, look at us. We, you know, we respect our elders. And like, if you don't listen to like Big pun, then you're not real hip hop and whatever. The, The silence I've seen from them is just so depressing and you, you know mm-hmm. you, you you try to look at things like like cultural connections and the fact that so many Chinese love basketball and 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 you know listen to American music and whatnot as sort of hope for the future but If even the folks that their lives are built off of 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 black culture in America like think either that it's too dangerous for them to say Black Lives Matter on their domestic webos or 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 it just doesn't resonate to them to them as something that's important it's just it's Mm -hmm. just so disheartening. That's
0: that's a really important insight, actually. Yeah, you're onto something there. I mean, I think it's probably a measure of all of those things. I mean, a degree of yeah, there's a, a level of self censorship. There's probably also a level that they frankly just feel they are actually <laughs> they don't feel connected to that american yeah. experience and that's yeah. telling of itself
1: it, it was interesting because a fair amount of them either like posted very pro government things during hong kong and that is something i can not not like not like forgive but understand given mm-hmm. the sort of media environment they've grown up in and given the pressure that they're facing like you know when every other chinese celebrity on weibo is saying go jail," like Hong Kong yeah. police. Right. And if you're not the one saying that then that puts you in a in a very difficult situation. But this is like I feel like there would be more room to run as someone who just wanted to make a statement or you know give a $1000 or whatever. And the well, fact that 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 didn't happen yeah. is really 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 upsetting. I mean, I
0: think it's probably you know it's a reflection of how the civil rights movement and the black freedom struggle has been described in, in Chinese education. It's it's not yeah. there you know it's never like drawn as a, as something with relevance for Chinese people today. That's one thing. And then, and then, you know, what I think is something also this reminds me of what I've always found to be a a persistently interesting question, which is why, why K-pop is so successful around the world and Chinese pop culture is not. And that's, as you know, you know, is a source of incredible frustration to, Certainly China's political leadership, but also to some degree, Chinese artists who will often be frustrated by that. And and depending on their level of independence and awareness, they will either recognize and blame the censorship system for that, or they will have other explanations. But I think part of the, you know, this just shows you that in some ways the K-pop world has been more, uh, is more awake to these kinds of, you know, these these global phenomena than than the Chinese hip hop world is. And that's an interesting point actually, because to the outside observer, they might, you know, you might gloss over the distinctions.
1: So, so speaking of sort of like international cultural capital, in this in this January piece you wrote about U.S. China relations, you had the pleasure of speaking to uh, none other than Judd Apatow, which I'm sure was a a first on the uh, U.S. China beat for uh, for for someone like yourself, Evan. So, so, so the point was that you know, and I think this is like a like a like a truth pretty uh, pretty long established now that major Hollywood studios are scared of having things in scripts of casting particular actors that would upset the uh, mainland market, but you know it just sort of occurred to me that there's one giant studio pool of money which has zero china exposure which is of course netflix so and and yeah. i think they've probably gotten the message at this point you know the, the the mark zuckerberg running in china like hopeful that one day we'll be let in um <laughs> moment i think is is probably gone forever for yeah. for for the netflix team so you know, say you decide that running around and talking to protesters is just is just not what you want to do for the next um, ten years, Evan. If you uh, wanted to pitch a a you know docudrama, a, a scripted show um, delving into Chinese society or Chinese politics to the execs up at at, at Netflix, what topics do you think deserve their own dance review?
0: I've always thought that the best description of Washington politics, having moved here is not House of Cards. It's Veep. And Veep captures (laughs) all of the sort of vanities and the small ways in which people make bad decisions all the time. And one of the things that we don't get when we talk about Chinese politics is is some of that. I think that would be amazing. I mean, I would love to, to see a show about... You know that. I mean, I. We sometimes talk about death of Stalin as such an interesting window into the nature of authoritarian governments and why people do the things they do. And I've often, you know, death of Stalin is an appropriate reference for understanding Trump world these days too, because all of that sort of the myth making and the creating of worlds around him and and so on. I would love to to see something funny about Chinese politics. We don't see that very often. I I, I, I think it's worth also pointing out here, you know, in spirit of our conversation, we're talking about some really serious stuff and we're talking about grave stuff and people's lives are on the line. So I don't want people to think that when we can laugh about it, that we're making jokes about it. It's, it's not that. It's like we're finding the mordant moments of light and levity within a subject that we've thought a lot about and we care about, you know? And so the fact that Veep is like a, a, an amazing portrait of Washington is not to, to to make light of the seriousness of what happens in Washington, but in fact, is a pretty powerful insight into the the role of individual persona and and personality when it comes to these huge decisions that impact lots of people. I find that really revealing.
1: I'm sold. I'll, I'll invest. Yeah, the, 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 the maybe four dollars we're gonna make from recording a show. Um, so Evan, so Evan, any 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 sort of broader reflections to sum up the differences uh, you've had just reporting on the U.S. over the past six years versus your stint on the mainland?
0: Yeah, in the sense, I spent a long time living overseas and reporting on on political culture in 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 other places. You know, lived in. Egypt and reported a lot in Iraq and lived in China obviously and in all and then did a lot around those regions and in some ways coming back to the United States has been a process of coming to understand and trying to answer the question for myself of how we became so alienated from the values that we try to project around the world and I actually feel almost like a personal responsibility to go back yeah. and begin to answer that question. Like, how did we actually lose our ability to to, to give people social mobility of the kind that we at least purport to protect? And how did we lose sight of the ability to protect our most vulnerable people? Those issues feel not just relevant on a domestic basis, but also for how the rest of the world thinks about the United States. And I feel like I've, I've got a hand in that process. And that kind of feels like a uh, something I need to do.
1: Well, as one of the few journalists who still has a job and a platform uh, with which to <laughs> explore those questions, I am frankly glad that you are one of those trying to work this all out for us. Well, Evan, having me today. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much on China Talk. This was, uh, this was fascinating.
0: This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jordan.
1: So I know it's cliche to use Martin Luther King quotes nowadays, but over the past week, I've been listening back to some of the audio of his speeches and have found them incredibly powerful and sustaining. Um, I want to play for everyone a snippet from the end of Martin Luther King's March 1965 speech delivered outside of the Alabama State House at the conclusion of the Selma to Montgomery March. If you have seven minutes right now, you really owe it to yourself to stop whatever you're doing and listen.
2: My people, my people, listen. Yes, sir. The battle is in our hands. Yes, sir. The battle is in our hands in Mississippi and Alabama and all over the United States. Yes, sir. I know that is a cry today in Alabama. Uh Uh-huh. We see it in numerous editorials. When will Martin Luther King, SCLC, SNCC, and all of these civil rights agitators and all of the White clergymen and labor leaders and students and others get out of our community and let Alabama return to normalcy. Mm-hmm.
0: See, I have a
2: message that I would like to leave with Alabama this evening. No, that is exactly what we don't want, and we will not allow it to happen. Yes, sir. For we know that it was normalcy in Marion uh-huh. yes, that led to the brutal murder of jimmy lee jackson uh-huh. Uh-huh. it was normal in birmingham that uh-huh. led to the murder on sunday morning of four beautiful unoffending innocent girls uh-huh. it was normalcy on highway 80 uh-huh. yes sir that led state troopers to use tear gas and horses and billy clubs against unarmed human beings who were simply marching for justice. Yes, it was normalcy by a cafe in Selma, Alabama, that led to the brutal beating of Reverend James Reyes. It is normalcy all over our country which leaves the Negro perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. It is normalcy all over Alabama That prevents the Negro from becoming a registered voter. No, we will not allow Alabama to return to normalcy. The only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy that recognizes the dignity and worth of all of God's children. The only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy that allows judgment to run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Yes, the only right. normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy of brotherhood, the normalcy of true peace, the normalcy of justice. And so as we go away this afternoon, let us go away more than ever before, committed to this struggle and committed to non-violence I must admit to you that there are still some difficult days ahead. We are still in for the season of suffering in many of the Black belt counties of Alabama, many areas of Mississippi, many areas of Louisiana. I must admit to you that there are still jail cells waiting for us. Dark and difficult moments. If we will go on with the faith that nonviolence and its power transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows, we will be able to change all of these conditions. And so I plead with you this afternoon as we go ahead to remain committed to nonviolence. Our aim must never be to defeat or humiliate the white man, but to win his friendship and understanding. We must come to see that the end we seek is a society at peace with itself, a society that can live with its conscience. That will be a day not of the white man, not of the black man. That will be the day of man as man. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men darken their understanding and drive bright-eyed wisdom from a sacred throne? Somebody's asking, when will wounded justice line prostrate on the streets of Selma and Birmingham and communities all over the South be lifted from this dust of shame to reign supreme among the children of men. Somebody's asking when will the radiant start of hope be plunged against the nocturnal bosom of this lonely night, plucked from weary souls the chains of fear and the manacles of death? How long will justice be crucified and truth buried? Yes, sir. I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, Yes, sir. However frustrating the hour, it will not be long, yes, because truth pressed the earth will rise again. Yes, sir. How long? Not long, yes, sir. because no lie can live forever. Yes, sir. How long? Not long, yes, How long, not long. Yes, because you shall reap what you sow. Yes, sir. How long? them unknown, standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. How long? Yes, Not long. Because yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Yes, How long? Yes, Not long. Because yes, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Yes, He's trampling out the village where the yes, sir. breaks of wrath are stored. Yes, He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. Yes, his truth is marching on. Yes, he has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. Yes, he is lifting up the hearts of men before his judgment seat. That yes, oh, all be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on.